Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Pastor McAllister, and we thank you for the work that he's put in this week and the the time that he has spent uh, preparing this message for us. Lord, uh, we thank you for his travel to be with us. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, open our minds, our hearts, prepare us for this time together with him, this chance to hear what you have shared with him. Lord, uh, we thank you for each person that's here today. Lord, each piece of our body that uh, we be blessed and grow closer to you. Lord, we thank you for each one of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this point, I would welcome uh, Pastor McAllister to come and join us. I'll let him uh, tell you who he is because he knows better than I do. And so, but it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for being here. While the privilege is truly mine, uh, I met Toby in fall of 2016. We both entered into the Doctorate of Ministry program at Master's Seminary, and I quickly noticed he had the same haircut as I did. <laughs> Lo and behold, found out he was from Linwood. Even more excited uh, since I come from Mount Vernon, Washington, so not too far from here. But, uh, and, uh, and since then, uh, Toby and I have stayed in touch and we'll occasionally have meals together and check in with each other, see how ministry's going. Um, and, uh, and, and he's been an incredible encouragement to me. I've, I've been in this church before, but none of you were here. And it was like on a Thursday afternoon and came down and wanted to see uh, where Toby was and, uh, and just really exciting to, to be here with you this morning. So again, it is my privilege. Anyone here like makeover shows? Have you seen these makeover shows? Uh, they, they range from anything from changing a person's wardrobe to changing their business, uh, oftentimes changing their house. It's, uh, it's one of our favorite shows. We oftentimes will watch as a family these makeover shows. I still remember all the way back in 20, uh, 2003, uh, this show, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, with a guy named Ty Pennington. Uh, you look him up now, he looks like a retired youth pastor or something like that, but... Uh, and he had this uh, kind of catchphrase, move that bus, and they'd move the bus, and lo and behold, there's this amazing home that they had renovated. Well, I asked that question because making over the church is all the rage these days. Uh, there are those who want to give it a new look, uh, often a look that's made in our own image, uh, a church that's fashioned for our own liking. Throughout the decades, people have attempted to reshape and redesign the church, thinking that they themselves know what's best for the body of Christ. Uh, just search on Amazon, look up books on the church, and you're sure to find a wide array of literary blueprints for what the church supposedly ought to look like. Uh, you find titles like Messy Church and Vertical Church, Woke Church, Meta Church, even a, a book called Church Zero. I'm curious to know what that means. Is a church made up of zeros? And part of the problem is that they, just like we oftentimes, don't know the right question to ask. The question we should be asking, the question we must be asking is this. What is God's design for his creation, the church? What does he want us to look like and to function like? And the first place we must look for that answer is the word of God. When Toby asked me to fill in for him, my mind went to our text for this morning, Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. Uh, I served uh, up until this past April of last year. Uh, my wife and I had been out at a little church called Samish Island Memorial Chapel. And God called us out there uh, 10 years prior. And there we served for nine years. We served uh, faithfully as, as much as we could. And, and there's a lot of similarities here that, uh, that hearken to my mind, uh, Samish Island. But while I was there, from beginning to end, Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16, our text was constantly at the forefront of my mind, largely because it's here in these six verses that we find a key element of God's design for the church. 
Let me offer us some background to this letter. And a, a wonderful letter as the letter of Ephesians is. It was written around 60 to 62 AD. Written from prison. Just remembering that as you, as you read Paul's words. You wouldn't expect uh, such joy to spill out through his uh, pen. And yet it does. And Paul was writing to first century believers living in the Roman province of Asia. And the letter itself is, is really a favorite for many Christians because it's packed full of encouragement and admonition. And one of the distinct ways in which Paul communicates that is by laying out all that we as Christians possess in Christ. Really, the, the book of Ephesians, if you wanted to sum it up in one word, it'd be the word identity. It's a book of identity, which Paul vividly details for his readers so that they and we might be motivated ultimately to action. In light of that, it's my hope this morning to answer two key questions. Number one, what is God's design and purpose for his church? And number two, how has God equipped us to do and to be that? And so in order to do that, to answer those two questions... Let me invite us into our text. If you're able to at this time, we invite us to stand for the reading of our text, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, and I will be reading from the ESV. Paul writes this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. What a privilege it is to gather together as the body of Christ and to celebrate the fact, one reality, that Christ is risen. And because of that, everything is changed. And we are changed as he has called us to himself. Lord, we pray that you would use the preached word this morning to equip us, to encourage us, to admonish us, and, and, and maybe even possibly rebuke us if we need that, Lord. We thank you for your word, which is truth, which is the truth. It is the very foundation of our lives, Lord. Pray that your spirit would be working in and through me this morning and that you would be speaking to every heart here, even now writing your word upon our hearts so that we might be more like Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to highlight four things. He's going to highlight our gifts. That's number one. Number two, highlight our growth. Number three, Paul highlights our guard. And then lastly, number four, Paul highlights our guarantee. Let's look at our gifts in verse 11. Now let me offer us some context before we actually jump into the text. The context of the chapter itself, Ephesians 4, actually suggests that Paul is alluding to spiritual gifts. You see that in verse 11. And these gifts are that which Christ has been authorized to give to men. You read of that in verse 8. And he's authorized to do so ultimately because of his submission to the Father on the cross. Now, such gifts were bestowed upon the earth, upon men, following Jesus' glorious resurrection. Look at verse 8 of Ephesians 4. Paul's going to reword Psalm 68, verse 18, 
wherein he says, When he, Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. After a great battle, the the victorious king historically would traditionally bring home not just those whom he had captured as prisoners of war, but he'd also bring home some of the spoils of war. And he would do so so that he might ultimately bless those whom he ruled. In Acts 1 and 2, Luke actually details for us how upon his ascension into heaven, Jesus gave spiritual gifts to his people through the coming of his indwelling spirit. Now, beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, Paul names four specific spirit-empowered gifts. He calls them gifts that Christ has given to his bride, the church. Now, even now you're thinking, Pastor, hold on a second. I counted five. There's clearly five there. Well, follow me on this. Paul is naming four gifts. And as you read the verse, you, really, you, you quickly realize that these gifts aren't things so much as they're people. More specifically, the gifts are individuals who are uniquely gifted and divinely called by God to serve the body. You might call them, their, you might call them gifted gifts or more familiar They're ministry leaders. These are four specific classes or offices within the church. Look at verse 11. Paul says, and Christ gave the apostles. This is the group you might call the sent ones. And the term apostles was used primarily for the 12 disciples who had originally seen Christ in his risen and resurrected state. The group actually included Matthias, who would later replace Judas Iscariot, the traitor, you read of that in Acts 1, verse 26. And in Galatians 1.1, in addition to this group, you see Paul is part of this group of the apostles. And he identifies himself as one in Galatians 1.1, as Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And that's a huge group. That's a group we're familiar with. But in addition to those what you might call 12 plus 1, the term apostle is actually also used in the New Testament in a much broader sense for other prominent early church leaders, men like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. And there were two things that they were ultimately called to do. The apostles were known, number one, for their teaching, and number two, for their signs. Number one, their teaching. You read of this in Acts 2, beginning in verse 42, where Luke tells us that they, that being the members of the early church, the first church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And there Luke emphasizes the fact that the preaching and the instruction of God's word was foundational to the very life and health of the church. It still is. And secondly, we see the signs in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul and Many wonders and many signs were being done through the apostles. And those signs are, the, are ultimately the proof that God was at work in and through those men. The apostles. Gift number two, the prophets. These would be the expounders of divine revelation. And the prophets were men who had been specifically commissioned by God and led by his spirit to foretell of future events and and realities in the life of the church and its members. It was these men who would call out the social sins of that time, as well as highlight and call out the failings of God's own people. And these two groups, the apostles and the prophets, are actually united. Back in Ephesians 2, Paul unites these first two gifts when he notes that we as the church are, quote, the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Incidentally, these were the ones whom Paul later notes in chapter 3 of Ephesians as having had, quote, the mystery of Christ made known to them by the Spirit. And both of these groups, both the apostles and the prophets, were vital to the life of the early church in terms of both their witness as well as their leadership. Now what's important to also note is that both of these church offices cease to exist beyond the completion of the New Testament. Since the church's foundation has already been built, there's essentially no apostles or prophets existing today. At least not in this sense of the word. 
But what is more, these first two gifts have essentially been replaced or followed up by the next two, the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Look at group three, the evangelists, the, the heralds of good news. Now, if ever there was an office that is severely overlooked in the church today, it would be this one. The evangelists. Those whose lives are given to the sole mission of proclaiming the, the euangelion, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their spiritual gift is actually matched with a deep passion, a yearning and longing to reach the lost. It's them who are the ones who have an eye towards and a heart for those who remain outside of the church. Uh, Philip in Acts 21 is really the only specific evangelist identified in the New Testament. Yet in 2 Timothy 4-5, Paul instructs his protege in the faith and ministry, Timothy, by writing, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So there's obviously some overlap there, some, some crossover. That's group number three, the, the third class of gifted gifts. That brings us to number four, the shepherds and teachers. Now, really, this, is to con- this should, ought to be considered as one specific office. As you get into the original text, there's, there's no definite article. It's, it's just the shepherd teachers. And, and, and these two titles sh- really should be understood as, as one group of people, the shepherd teachers. The New Testament also refers to these gifted men as elders or, or bishops, even overseers. It's really synonymous terms for the same calling. And it's the shepherd teachers who serve ultimately under the direction of the chief shepherd. Their calling, in the words of Acts 20 verse 28, is to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In Acts 6, 4, we're told that their focus was, is to primarily be upon, quote, prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's their calling. That's what they must do. Peter tells us that these men are to, quote, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It's a high calling indeed. Now I just want to stop and just consider what we've already heard. These four groups, these four offices within the church as we know it. I just want us to think about everything that these gifts actually mean to us as the church. We essentially have our history and our theological foundation because of the apostles. We have the gospel embodied and emphasized because of the prophets. We personally have been given that message and thus included in the church because of the evangelists. And we have been and continue to be cared for and led and lovingly instructed as the church because of the shepherd teachers. And women, it's precisely these spiritual servants and ministers whose shoulders we've stood upon as the body of Christ for the past two centuries. They're gifts. They're gifts. The evangelist who boldly proclaims the truth of the gospel. What a gift. Your worship pastor. What a gift. Pastor Toby. Pastor Jordan. These are gifts given to the church. Every man who stands behind this very pulpit. And preaches the word to you. Is a gift. Now I say that not to inflate their egos. Or mine. That's certainly not my goal this morning. But rather, it's to help us understand the true nature of the calling that's been bestowed upon those whom God has called to serve within the body of Christ. But I also say that because we can so often be so quick to complain about what our church leaders do or, or don't do. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, And are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And women, such teachers and leaders are absolutely fundamental to our growth. 
and discipleship as followers of Christ. They're the ones who are constantly, continually leading the charge for so many elements of our personal walk as believers, as well as our shared faith as the church. Hebrews 13, 17, we're told that we are to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's a high calling. In fact, the author says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And women, everything that these gospel ministers do is ultimately used by Christ to bless and direct and to rule over his church. And all of these gifts, past and present, ultimately come together in a unique work which can be summed up in one word, growth. Growth. Look at verse 12. Paul goes, he shifts the focus from our gifts to number two, our growth. In verse 12, we see the purpose, right? Every spiritual gift has a divinely intended purpose. What is the purpose of the ministry leaders? Well, Paul says, verse 12, that they are to equip the saints. I've alluded to it, but let me say it more clearly. Pastors and church leaders are often urged to do all kinds of things by people whom they serve. And, and without question, there are many things that they can do. Many good things that they can do. But this is one of the things that they must do. This is their central calling. To equip the saints. This, the, the Greek word for equip comes from the verb meaning to fit. To, to complete thoroughly. It, it has the idea of either strengthening something. Or, or ultimately bringing it to a state of perfection. What Paul's telling us here in Ephesians 4 is that God's servants have been sent so that God's saints, you and I, might be completely furnished. As we'll see later, central to this equipping work is the ministry of God's word, insofar as it's both lovingly taught and powerfully preached to God's people. And what exactly does God use these gifts, these gifted leaders to equip us for? Look again, verse 12. Paul says, for the work of ministry, or what you might deem Christian service. The gifts are to equip for the work. And this essentially is where the rest of the church comes in. This is where all of us come in. For we are all called to serve out of our unique spiritual giftedness. We all, Paul says, have a work to do. In fact, in the section leading up to our passage, Paul tells us that, quote, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We see that in Ephesians 4, verse 7. In fact, we read it this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, Paul says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God, Paul says, who empowers them all and everyone. Verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul's referring here to specific giftings and ministries within the church, all of which work towards God's intended purposes and overall goals. Many women, our spiritual gifts ultimately promote our spiritual goals, the goals that have been established by God. Let me emphasize this again, because this is, this is key, this is important. All of the members of God's church are to be engaged in some sort of spiritual endeavor and labor. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Peter says, As you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To be a holy priesthood. And that is essentially the priesthood of all believers. Men, women, this shatters the myth of the paid professional minister as well as the assumed division between laymen and clergy as if one's better than the other. No, nowhere do we see in Scripture that it is the sole responsibility of the pastor of the church to do everything while everybody else just sits back and watch. And I highly doubt many of you want to sit back and watch. You want a piece of the game. You want to be involved. But this is ultimately the million dollar question. Who are the ministers of the church? Who's the minister? 
That's such an almost antiquated term when you would introduce your pastor. Well, this is our minister. No, biblically, who are the ministers of the church? It's all of you. It's all of us. And all of us are called to minister first and foremost to one another as the body. And secondly, to the rest of the world. Paul continues to elaborate upon the purpose for the previously mentioned gifts. Look again at verse 12. He says, for building up the body of Christ. Here Paul helps us to understand that our spiritual gifts not only promote our spiritual goals, but also our spiritual growth. To build up. That essentially refers to the work of spiritual edification in and among the saints. It it, it refers to our cultivation, our growing as the church. Essentially the promoting of our collective spiritual development. In terms of things like our love for one another, our wisdom, the very holiness of our life, our personal devotion to the Lord, even our contagious joy. Some of which I was feeling this morning during worship. And Paul tells us and reminds us here so wonderfully that grace has been given by the Lord to every Christian in the form of a spiritual gift, which is intended for the mutual help and edification of one another. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 4 and 5, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We don't all do the same thing. We do a a myriad of different things. We're gifted in different ways. And Paul says that's so that, verse, verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That's us. Each of us as believers called and equipped to serve the church in a unique and special way. In fact, back in Ephesians 3, 2, Paul actually refers to, quote, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. That's an often repeated theme by Paul. And Paul's speaking there of that which enabled him to fulfill his particular calling and ministry within the body of Christ. Christ gifted Paul, and Paul in turn gifted the early church by ministering to them, but also helping them to be built up so that they too might use their gift and be a blessing to others. I want to be as practical as I can be about this. You know what this means for us? This means that being a Christian is going to involve a lot more than just us going to church every Sunday. Right? Think of, think of the illustration of a tool. Think of just all the tools you possess in your, in your garage, your basement, your shed. Think of what each tool can do. Now think about everything that they could do when they're used together. What they're capable of. Listen, those tools weren't designed to just serve as decorative pieces on a wall, right? Like on something you'd watch on HGTV on a design show, right? That's not what a hammer or a shovel's meant for to just hang, be hung up on a wall and looked at. And believe you me, the companies that crafted those tools, they never meant for them to sit in your toolbox or just collect dust as they clutter up your backyard shed. So in the same way, all of us who are tools, who are gifts, we're going to have to get involved. And we're going to have to remain committed to the cause as well as to the life and various ministries of this church if we ever hope to see the sort of eternal results that ultimately bring God the glory. In 1 Corinthians 14, 12, Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So just to summarize, in these two verses we see this. The gifts, the leaders, equip the saints. The saints do the work of the ministry. And that ministry in turn ultimately builds up the body. And Paul says it all occurs and leads up to, look at verse 13, until we all attain to. Until we all attain to or or come to, first, the unity. Right? Our growth involves our unity. As we're growing, we're actually growing closer. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, Paul says, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Later in chapter 4, Paul will say very clearly, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Man, women, God has literally woven oneness into the very fabric of our identity as his church. We are one. We are united. And Paul goes on to explain how our unity actually springs out of two things. Number one, our faith. And number two, our knowledge. Look again, verse 13. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we read that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And that phrase essentially speaks of the mutual agreement of our shared belief and God-given trust in God's word as well as God's son. It's what we sing of. We sing, we're, we're, we've showed up because we're a people of faith. And we've sung of that one faith that unites us. But Paul says our unity also springs out of not just our faith in Christ, but secondly, our knowledge of Christ. Look at this phrase in verse 13. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. There Paul's speaking of a right and ever-growing, ever-deepening understanding of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, in fact, was, quote, verse, uh, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 17 of Ephesians, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And women, there it is, together, our shared belief in God and his word and our ever-growing understanding of who Jesus is. Paul says those are the spiritual threads that God uses to bind us as his family so beautifully together. Paul goes on to say that it's ultimately to mature manhood, meaning that our growth not only involves our unity, but secondly, it involves our maturity. As we grow, we not only grow closer, but we grow deeper to maturity. Mature, it, it, it can be rendered perfect or, or complete. In fact, that phrase in verse 13 suggests maximum personhood. It's, it's the picture of a full-grown adult. might interest you to know that in Greek culture, a mature man was the ultimate picture of human perfection. It was strength combined with splendor, sheer beauty Matched with brawn. I don't know what appears in your mind. In my mind, I, I think of statues like Atlas and Rockefeller Center or, or Michelangelo's David in Italy. Just this picture of the perfect man. That's really what Paul has in mind here and yet really on a spiritual level. And how is that maturity defined by God? Well, look at the next phrase. He says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In Romans 8, 29, Paul tells us, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You put all of that together, it ultimately means that Jesus is our model and our example. That chain of terms conveys the idea of us being everything that God wants us to be. And what is that? Like Christ. God the Father wants us to be like Christ. Us, as the body of Christ, are being shaped into the image of Christ himself. Men, women, that is God's ultimate aim and goal for the church. That's his aim and goal for this church. And let me add, there's no shortcuts that can be taken to achieve that goal. I, as a human being, love shortcuts. I mean, we use the illustration of tools. Believe you me, I've used tools in ways they shouldn't be used because I want to save some time and ultimately end up burning more time than I should have. It's natural for us as human beings to yearn for shortcuts, but such shortcuts ultimately keep us from growth and maturity. God wants us and intends for us as his people to grow up and to grow close. That brings us thirdly to our guard, our guard. 
Look at verse 14. Beginning in this verse, Paul's going to employ some vivid metaphors to describe practical signs of spiritual immaturity. And he's going to pair the effects of spiritual immaturity followed by the causes of spiritual immaturity. Look at the effects, verse 14. All of this occurs so that we may no longer be children. The image of a child there in verse 14 suggests someone who's untaught or unskilled. It's, it's, it, it's the idea of being simple-minded or immature. It's essentially the opposite of the person who's reached mature manhood back in verse 13. And we know what children are like. A lot of children are gullible. My kids, I have two kids, a, a four-year-old and a nine-year-old, and they'll fall for almost anything. They're far too trusting. I, I'm, I'm trying as a parent to, to try and shore that up and make sure they don't fall for, for anything. But then I remember it's kind of funny. It's funny to, to get them to fall for a joke. But what's more, they're notoriously fickle, right? Changing their mind every five seconds. We have this battle almost daily in our house. It goes a little something like this. Dad, I'd like some chicken fingers. Great, let me get you some chicken fingers. Three minutes later, here's your chicken fingers. I hate chicken fingers. I want macaroni and cheese. You didn't ask for macaroni and cheese. You asked for chicken fingers. I hate chicken fingers. Why'd you ask for chicken fingers? I can't stand food, right? And you're just like frazzled as a parent. But that's the reality. The desires and feelings and emotions of a child can be all over the place. And rather than get frustrated, the best thing we can do as a parent is come along and help them grow up. And we can laugh about that in terms of a physical child. It's not so laughable as you consider a spiritual child who's immature. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 12, you read this spiritual rebuke where the author says to this church, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Men and women, do you know the kind of Christian who's the most susceptible to accepting false teachings? It's a spiritual child. It's a spiritual infant. And Paul says here in Ephesians 4, God doesn't want his nursery, want his church to be a nursery made up of spiritual toddlers. All of this is unfolding. God has given us these gifts so that we may no longer be children. Paul goes on to describe, he uses another metaphor here, tossed to and fro by the waves. Has anybody here ever been at sea and, and been caught in a storm? Thankfully, I haven't. I've been on the water though. And, and even the slightest, choppiest water and, and what was smooth sailing quickly becomes quite an adventure as you're being bounced up and down and side to side. And, and it's jarring, right, to be on a boat in rolling waves all over the place, ultimately feeling powerless, not knowing what direction you're going to go next, right? This phrase obviously paints the picture of a boat or a ship being at the mercy of a turbulent storm. That's how it can be for some of us. If we're not rooted in God's word and the truth, if we're, not, if we're not united with the people of God, we can be thrown all about spiritually. Paul goes on to describe another effect is, is being carried about. Here he's suggesting the idea of being moved all around in terms of one's mental state. It's anything from thoughts of doubt and hesitation all the way to feelings of agitation and distress. We're carried about. That's what it looks like when we allow ourselves to be swayed from one spiritual opinion to the next. We're tossed all over the place. And how? How does this occur? Well, Paul gives us three potential threats to believers in the church. Look again at, at this verse. By every wind of doctrine, he says. That's the first threat. More specifically, every wind of false doctrine. Right? True biblical doctrine it, it works to anchor us as the people of God, to the very character and promises of God. Whereas false doctrine causes us to, well, in Paul's words, to be thrown about and ultimately swept away in terms of our personal hopes and beliefs. Listen, there are those in the church today who are like a kite in the wind when it comes to their believing every spiritual teaching or, or quasi-Christian thought. They're all over the place. 
Paul says we as the church ought to be so committed to God's word that we wouldn't put up with even the slightest twisting or corruption of it. In fact, it hearkens to mind the Bereans in Acts 17 verse 11 where we read, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Listen to this. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's discernment. Those are, those are the people who aren't saying what we oftentimes will say, well, the pastor said it, so it must be true. Which is really a lot like, well, I read it on the internet, so it must be true. Right? We need to be showing discernment. The second threat, Paul says, by human cunning. This can be rendered or defined as trickery. It, it really describes deception or, or, or sleight of hand. It's like a you might think of it in terms of a theological shell game, right? The, you have the three uh, shells and you're moving the ball all around. And, and that's what it becomes like. Where's the truth? Is it here? Is it there? If ever there was a term to describe the kinds of bait and switch techniques that we see so often utilized by these seeker-sensitive churches today, it's that one. It's trickery. It's deception. we got to fill seats, so let's do whatever we need to do to get people to come in, even if we have to deceive them. Paul says, that's not good. That's a threat. And threat number three, he defines it as, quote, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And here Paul's talking about a sort of deceitful cleverness that's prompted by a false form of worldly wisdom. And that false form of wisdom is ultimately expressed by evil people in crafty plotting and maneuvering. And all of this, if you were to summarize all of this scheming and trickery and deceit, all of it is done to ultimately draw the believer away from God and his truth. It's for this reason that Paul tells his readers in Ephesians 6.11 that we are to, quote, put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. All three of those potential threats result in a lack of mental and spiritual stability for the believer. All three of them can and will cause us to be carried about as Christians if we allow them to. Or more so if we refuse to grow spiritually in the context of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. That brings us to number four, the fourth element, our guarantee. Our guarantee. And here, Paul's going to speak, beginning in verse 15, of signs of spiritual maturity. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. That's such a beautiful verse. And yet, I so oftentimes fail to grasp the reality of what's, what I'm being called to do there. Speaking the truth in love. Love, namely the love of God's own Son. In 1 John 4, we read, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, John says, excuse me, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's love and truth, namely the truth of God's Word. Jesus himself prayed in John 17, 17 for his disciples saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Men and women, this is one of our central callings as believers. To speak the truth in love. Genuine love paired with uncorrupted truth. Right? It can't be either or. It has to be both and. Right? Truth without love ultimately lends itself towards harsh legalism. Whereas love without truth lends itself towards sentimental liberalism. Nevertheless, both are deadly. Right? A false teaching or false doctrine is just as cancerous to the body of Christ as a loveless spirit or atmosphere. This is our calling. What is more, it's the essence of our unity as the church. We are united around the Christ-like love demonstrated on the cross by the Son of God as well as the biblical truth that proclaims, that embodies that truth for us. And this is ultimately what the leaders, the gifts back in verse 11, work to equip in us as the body. It begins in the pulpit, our study Bible classes, everything that happens in the life of the church. 
but it's then in turn carried out by us into the community and beyond, right from this pulpit and out into the world, speaking the truth in love. And by doing that, Paul says, middle of verse 15, that we are to grow up. No one likes to be told that, right? You need to grow up. I've heard that a lot in my lifetime. And embarrassingly, a lot of the times, they were right. I need to grow up. But the truth of the matter is we all need to, right? That's one of the reasons why we as the church gather, so that we can grow. That's one of the fundamental purposes for our being together and fellowshipping together. It's at the very heart of our discipleship relationships. It's the goal of all of our spiritual training and teaching from God's word. Pastor Toby, Pastor Jonathan, or Jordan up here preaching. Why? Because they like the sound of their own voice? No, so that we all can grow. We all need to grow up. Paul says in every way. In other words, in all areas of our spiritual life and in all of our conduct as Christians. Into him, Paul says, who is the head into Christ. Right? It's Christ who is the model and mold for the church. He's the one from whom we take our lead. He's the one who calls the shots. In Colossians 1 verse 17, in the middle of one of the greatest descriptions of who Jesus is, Paul says that Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There Paul is telling us that Jesus is not only generally sovereign over all of creation, but he's also specifically sovereign, explicitly sovereign over the church, over the body of Christ. And that's why we, we must, as the church, in the words of Colossians 2.19, be holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knitted together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth, don't miss this, that is from God. Verse 16, Paul says, this is from whom the whole body, right? All the members of God's true church are joined and held together. There again, you have this language of genuine spirit-fused unity, right? A unity that you and I don't manufacture. It's not on us to make unity. Rather, we work to maintain what's already there. That which the Spirit of God has already accomplished. And it's joined and held together, Paul says, by every joint, every fastening ligament with which it is equipped when each work is working, each part is working properly. Right? When, when we're cooperating, right? We all need to be on the same page, namely the, the same biblical blueprint, working together towards the same God-honoring, Christ-exalting goal, which in turn means if there's no growth, if there's no growth, well then it may very well be that not every member, every part is doing what Paul says here, is working properly is serving as he or she is equipped to serve. That's how we are to function within the body. And we are blessed with the gifts that Christ gives us. And Paul concludes by saying that, that those gifts are given ultimately so that Christ might make the body grow. There it is again. Paul's telling us that it's Jesus who's responsible for the life and growth of his church. It's Jesus who can say and did say, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We try and build the church in our own image. It's doomed to fail. But Christ does it. And Paul says it's ultimately, he, he makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Can I just point out, when Paul speaks of the body of Christ being built up, he speaks not in terms of numerical growth, Rather, he's speaking of spiritual growth. If you get anything out of the message this morning, it's this. Substance always trumps size. It doesn't matter the size of a church numerically. What matters is its maturity and its unity. Believe you me, when the body of Christ looks and acts like this, what we see here in Scripture, God proves his faithfulness by doing the same thing he did all throughout the book of Acts. He and he himself adds members to the church. In turn, it's not great pastors who are ultimately the cause for great churches. 
I love Toby. But this church is not great ultimately because of Toby. Rather, great churches become great through the Son of God working in and through the people of God as faithful and loving ministers of the gospel. And women, these are the clear signs of spiritual health and growth within the church. That each member is thinking about how to help others grow and in turn is serving one another out of love with that glorious goal in mind. In conclusion, you and I haven't been saved so we can just sit and watch, right? Just simply fill a pew. And we haven't been saved so that we can have a social group to belong to. We haven't been saved so that we might even be rescued from things like loneliness or a low self-esteem. And we certainly haven't been saved so that we can just skip from church to church until we find the one that suits all our personal desires. No, we've been saved from sin and its curse so that we might serve and so that we might ultimately give our lives away for the sake of God and his glorious kingdom and nothing less. Randy Alcorn said, when we invest ourselves in others, everybody wins. Don't you love that line? Paul says it even better in Ephesians 2.10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That ultimately begins with our commitment to use our spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. No church is ever too old to grow up And we do that in large part by each of us faithfully using our spiritual gifts. God has furnished us as the body, as his church, with everything that we need to function. Which means you and I don't have to make it happen. Rather, as we serve faithfully, we can watch God get to work. And we can see Christ be exalted. There's no better place to be than amidst the fellowship of a church that is acting and looks like what it ought to look like as God intended it to look like. Let's pray. Father God, this can be a heavy message and in no way do I intend it to be that way. Yet within it, it's a reminder that every Sunday morning as we gather together, we are celebrating the greatest gift, the gift of Jesus Christ, who in turn has graciously given us gifts so that we might grow and mature, that we would grow deeper and closer as your family. Lord, we're reminded this morning that we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ with ourselves being your servants for Christ's sake. Lord, make us like that. Help us to serve faithfully, Lord. Help there to be a contagious joy as we minister to one another and as that overflows into the community and into the world at large. May you continue to build up your church for your own glory, Lord, and not our own. For it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.